Good morning, everyone. It is great to see you guys. Uh, it is great to see some of you in person for the first time in a long while, and we're still uh, really excited to see all of you guys who are joining in on our live stream. Usually, I'm the one checking to make sure we're live streaming, so if you can't see me, I'm sorry. Uh, I don't know it, uh, but usually I do. Um, it's great to see you guys today. We are super excited to be back in our building uh, for the first time in a while, and just excited to worship with you guys and dig into God's Word. Uh, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here, and today we are going to be in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. You can go ahead and turn your Bibles there, and we are continually, uh, continuing to look at the gospel message which Jesus gives to unlikely people. Uh, the gospel message that Jesus gives to unlikely people. Uh, while you're turning there, I want to tell you briefly about one such unlikely person, uh, a man by the name of John Newton who has been dead for a long time. But if we could go back and meet John in the year 1750, we would probably not think very much of this guy. We would probably, in fact, really not enjoy his company. Uh, the 25-year-old at that time had spent most of his life as a sailor uh, in the Navy and on merchant ships and living the kind of unencumbered, uh, single life that a sailor can moving from port to port. Um, and by his mid-20s, he had spent a number of years working in the African slave trade. And eventually he worked his way up and became the captain of a ship where he would buy uh, captured African men, women, and children and transport them to a life of slavery in England in the United States. In fact, later on in his life, he would look back at his choices and his profession and he would describe himself as lost and wretched. And so if we had known this man in 1750, the middle of his young life, uh, we would not have had great hopes for his future. And there would have been very little evidence based on his actions, based on his speech, based on his choices, that he had any interest in following God or of meeting Jesus. And a mountain of evidence to the contrary, that he was a lost cause, that he was unreachable, that nothing would ever come from his life. But this unreachable man, this great sinner, would one day become an Anglican pastor— and an instrument, or an instrumental abolitionist who would one day lead um, the movement that would abolish the slave trade in England um, and end this, this terrible period of history. And he would even become a famous writer of some of the most well-known hymns. And it would be his famous lines that would describe his own life. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found was blind, but now I see. The gospel came for this unreachable man, and today we are going to see how the gospel of Jesus comes for the unreachable. So let's look together at Luke chapter 7, 36 through 50. This is what God's word says. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask, flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman that, that is who is touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. 
And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for your feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning thankful for your word. We ask that you would help us clear away the distractions and hear what you would speak to us. Father, I pray that today the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth would be pleasing and acceptable in your eyes. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this passage begins with Simon, a Pharisee, inviting Jesus over for a meal. And this would have been a really common thing to do, to invite a respected teacher over to eat after teaching at synagogue, the same way we would might invite a guest speaker over after church to go eat lunch. It's a polite thing to do. Um, and this meal would have been fairly public. Members of the community could have come and seen this famous teacher, Jesus, speaking with one of their local leaders. And as a Pharisee, Simon who was hosting this meal, he is an honored and a respected member of society. The Pharisees were a group who were known for their dedication to God's word, for studying it and trying to live lives of extreme righteousness. They took God's word very seriously. And this meal is going normally until something really strange happens. A woman comes in and falls at Jesus' feet, weeping, weeping, crying onto his feet, washing his feet with her hair and anointing his feet with this expensive bottle of perfume, of ointment, something that would probably would have cost months and months of income just to be able to afford. She pours it on his feet and washes them. And this is pretty shocking. You'd be pretty uh, uncomfortable if someone came into your dinner party and did this to you. Uh, but it was actually pretty surprising for those people as well. What she's doing is not a very common thing to do. Uh, it would have been normal to anoint a respected teacher or, or perhaps a prophet with oil over their head, but no one did this over their feet. Uh, it would have been pretty shocking for a woman to just uh, let down her hair in, in mixed society like that for their time. Um, all of this is a little bit strange. But while her actions are not normal customs, they're a little bit uncomfortable, um, it's clear that her heart is in the right, in the right place. And they show that she is... Uh, has ex profound respect and adoration for Jesus. Everything she does is immensely respectful, is immensely um, um, just appreciative and, and, and gracious. And Jesus allows her to do these things. He's showing that he approves. He's not stopping her. He's not sending her away. He's affirming what she's doing. But Simon and the others who are there watching, uh, they think differently. They're looking at this and they're pretty upset. Simon, who's a resident of this town, he knows who this woman is. She has a reputation. She is a notorious sinner. And the gospel tells us that this reputation was earned. In verse 46, Jesus will confirm this and say that her sins were many. And we really don't know anything about this woman other than what we have here. We don't know who she was. We don't know what she had done. But we know that her life had been full of great sin against 
God against others, and that they were known. Uh, she's known around town for what she's done. This is all out in the light. And so she's not the kind of person who a respectable religious leader would spend his time with. And so he's shocked that Jesus would spend time with this sort of person, too. There are people in our world who might fit this same description, who are the sinners. There are people who are far from God, as we might say. There are those who might even be, like, pushed aside by the culture at large, but especially by religious communities, especially by respectable, church-going, God-fearing people who we would not spend our time with. They're seen as outsiders, people who we would avoid, people who we would not meet their gaze. We would turn our eyes away. We would move to the other side of the street. These are the lost causes. These are the unreachable. People like John Newton, as we described earlier in his early phase of life. Now, you may think of a, a person or a kind of person when we describe this, the outsiders, the unreachable, people who we think they would never come to Jesus. And perhaps even you might feel that way as well. We might think of the mistakes in our life, our past or even our present, and the ways that we are not following God, these things that haunt us. And we might feel ourselves that we are impossibly far away from God. This is what it means to feel written off, to feel uh, to where people don't even see you as a person anymore. They only see the sin. They only see the stigma. They only see your mistakes that you carry around with you. You're just a walking sin. You feel like lost causes, unreachable. Now, that's the kind of woman this woman was. Now, as Simon witnesses these actions, knowing her reputation, knowing her sins— he sees Jesus accepting her, and he immediately has major questions about Jesus. He's respected him as a teacher before, and now he's not so sure. He says in verse 39, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was who is touching him, for she, for she is a sinner. Uh, so he's, he's saying here, this guy must not be a prophet. I must have been wrong. Because he clearly has no idea who this lady is. He doesn't know this past. And if he did, he would get her as far away as possible. He's assuming that anyone who's truly from God would have nothing to do with this kind of person. That a prophet would never let this woman come anywhere near him. And so Jesus must not be a prophet at all. He's questioning Jesus' identity and doubting if he could come from God. But unfortunately, as with when we encounter God, uh, Simon says all this to himself, but Jesus knows exactly what he's thinking, um, which is a tough place to be in for Simon. Uh, and it's, uh, it's going to come back to, to bite him here. So Jesus knows what he's thinking, and he responds uh, with two—that um, uh, that shows that two, Simon is wrong in two really important ways. Simon gets two things really, really wrong. First, he just does not understand the way Jesus interacts with sinful people. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand the attitude that Jesus brings towards those he would consider unreachable or great sinners. And that leads him to his second error. Because of that, he does not understand who Jesus is. He doesn't know who's sitting there in front of him. So we're going to look at these two mistakes that Simon makes, and we're going to see how Jesus corrects those mistakes in what he teaches him. So this leads us to our first point that Jesus teaches here in this encounter. Jesus teaches um, that Jesus gives great forgiveness to great sinners. Jesus offers great forgiveness to great sinners. Uh, the theologian and pastor John Calvin, when he's writing about this section, uh, says that Simon's mistake was not considering that Christ came to save what was lost, and that Christ was given as a deliverer to miserable and lost men, and to restore them from death to life. He doesn't understand the mission that Jesus has come into the world for. 
Now, when Jesus accepts this woman, when he, when he welcomes her and her actions, that doesn't mean that her sin isn't real. It doesn't mean that it's not serious or even that she's worthy of coming to Jesus. It doesn't mean any of those things. And so we should not see Jesus' actions as, as a sign that sin doesn't matter or that sin is not serious, even that it doesn't bring God's judgment. Sin is very serious. But it does mean that Jesus has come for the people who are the most sinful. Jesus has come for the people who are most in need of rescue. He's come for the very most unworthy people, the lost causes, the unreachable. And he's come to offer them the gospel, to offer them forgiveness and transformation. Jesus tells us that although this woman might have been guilty of many sins, the mercy of God was so abundant toward her that she ought no longer to be regarded as a sinner. The mercy of God was so abundant that it changed who she was, and it changed the way Jesus could come to her. And so we see here that notorious sinners find forgiveness in Jesus when they come in faith. Notorious sinners find forgiveness in Jesus when they come in faith. Christ's mercy and graciousness means that no one is truly unreachable. God delights to forgive sin, and even delights to forgive the greatest of sins, the worst crimes, the farthest we can go from God. There is no sin, and there is no amount of sin, right? There's nothing so bad, and there's nothing so abundant that we can do that will completely cut us off from the miraculous forgiveness of God. And so we have to resist the notion that we have so many times, that I've felt so many times in my life, that I have to get everything together before I can come to Jesus, right? I've got this problem, and if I could just fix it, and if I could just get it behind me far enough, then I could go to Jesus, right? Then I could come back. It's the old expression, if I walked into a church, God's going to strike that building down, so I better not go there, right? I better stay as far away from God because of this thing that's in my life. And that might sound really holy, right? Like, oh, I don't want to come. I, I respect God. I know I have problems but it's actually incredibly prideful and arrogant because it treats our sin as a problem that we have the ability to fix. It means that we can get this under control and we don't really need God to do that. And if I can just pull myself together, then I can go and I can be useful to God. And that is exactly backwards. That is exactly the opposite of what the gospel teaches us. We must bring our mess. We must bring our sin to Jesus and let him take it to the cross and let him take it away. Forgiveness doesn't come because we are worthy, but because we approach in faith. That's what Jesus ends this account by saying to the woman. He tells her that her faith has saved her. Ephesians uh, 2, 8 and 9 tells us something uh, very similar. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. To come in faith means to place our trust wholly in Jesus and what he's done. We, we put our life on the line for him. We, we trust his perfect life. We trust his death on our behalf. And we trust the transformative forgiveness that he gives to us. It means that we give him our complete loyalty and we make him not just our savior, but our Lord. We belong to Jesus and that changes everything. And this forgiveness that comes through faith is open to absolutely everyone. Anyone may come in humble faith. So don't believe the lies of the enemy that tells you um, that you're too great a sinner to come to Jesus. Don't believe your heart's pride that will look at someone else and say, this person is too far gone. This person can't come to Jesus yet. There's no one who is there. There's no one who is too great a sinner to come to Jesus. Now, Simon doesn't really understand this, and so Jesus confronts him with a parable, which is a, a, hyper, a hypothetical story that's made to prove a point. 
Um, and he wants to challenge the way that Simon views this woman and the way that Simon views himself. And in his story, he describes there's two debtors, right? There's two people who owe money to the same person. And the one guy owes a lot of money, right? He owes about 18 months, 20 months wages, a lot, a lot of money. He's really gotten behind. And the other guy owes only about two months wages, not as much, but still significant. And neither one are able to pay. They, they don't have anything. They can't, can't get out of debt. They're just stuck there. And so the, the guy who they owe money to just decides, like, debt's gone. It's just forgiven. Go your way. You're free. Uh, un- unprompted. They don't ask for it. They don't beg for it. He just, out of the goodness of his heart, releases them from this debt. And so Jesus wants to know which of the two debtors will be more grateful. He says more loving, and that's meant to give this idea. Which one is more thankful, more, more grateful for what's happened? Now, I think Simon realizes that he's made a mistake here because Jesus is telling him this elaborate story. And so he's like, oh, no, I made a mistake. And he, so he's about to get dunked on. He knows it's about to get posterized, but he kind of plays along anyway. And so he answers truthfully. He says, yeah, well, it would be the guy who got forgiven more. Um, and Jesus says, yeah, that's right. The guy who is forgiven more, the one who's received the greater gift, is more grateful for what he's received. Now, what is Jesus doing? He's comparing sin to financial debt. And he's asking us to imagine the joy and the freedom that would come with that all being washed away. The joy and the freedom of one who is forgiven. A debtor can't pay on his own. He is in no position to bargain. Uh, He's in no position to dig himself out. He's stuck. He's at the mercy of another. And so to have that debt removed is to be set free, to experience grace, a gift that is freely given that we do not deserve. Now, this woman has experienced this. She has been forgiven by God. She has seen this amazing grace. And this is evidenced by her great love. So what's Jesus' point? What's Jesus trying to teach Simon? He's teaching him that forgiven sinners respond to Jesus with love and gratitude. Forgiven sinners respond to Jesus with love and and gratitude. Great forgiveness should produce great thankfulness and love. And so it actually transforms who we are. It changes the way we act, the way we think, and it changes the way our emotions work. It changes our loves, even. Jesus asks who will love him more, and he's getting at this idea of of gratitude, but also of of actual affection and, and love and loyalty towards the person who is forgiven. Being forgiven by Jesus should cause us to love him. It should result in this same kind of overflowing affection and gratitude that this woman shows. And it clearly showed with this woman. She went, she pulled out all the stops to show every way possible that she was so grateful for this forgiveness that she'd been given. Now, we don't know where this came from. We don't know if there was an encounter with this woman previously where Jesus had spoken with her. We don't know if she just heard Jesus' teaching and responded to that. We don't know. But when she comes to Jesus weeping, either from the, the remorse for her past or in the joy of her forgiven future, that her life has been flipped upside down and she is overcome with joy and gratitude. It has transformed her. Now, it's important that we get the order right here. We might wrongly assume that because of her outpouring, because of her gratitude and her actions, she's been forgiven. But this is, again, exactly backwards of the gospel. We are incapable of loving Jesus enough. We're incapable of being thankful enough or, or, or even of asking well enough to be forgiven it is, or, or earning forgiveness through acts of devotion. Instead, it is God's action which comes first, which produces this love and the transformation in us. Our love and gratitude, like the woman's, is a consequence. It's the evidence of forgiveness. It's not the cause. 
That's why Jesus is clear to say at the end, it is your faith that has saved you. It is by putting your trust in me that has saved you. And it has resulted, it has been evidenced, it has been made clear by your love, by your actions, by the transformation. We must also, again, beware here of taking sin too lightly. Jesus freely forgives, but that does not release us to freely return to our sin. That is evidence. When we say, oh, I've been forgiven. Jesus has wiped away that sin. Now I'm going to go do some again, and I'll be back next week to wash that off again, and we'll just keep doing this, right? That means that you don't really experience this. You haven't really felt the weight of sin. We haven't really felt the, the mercy and the forgiveness, the, the real freedom. A theologian called this cheap grace. It's just using God to continue to do whatever we want to do without any consequences. And that's not how this works. That means we have not shown the evidence of transformation. We haven't shown the forgiven life. A transformed life is a necessary consequence of encountering Jesus and of following him. And the Bible illustrates this by talking about a tree and its fruit. You know a tree by the fruit it produces. Now you can't tape, you can't go to the store and buy an apple and tape it up to a dead tree and say, look, it's a healthy apple tree. It's got an apple. That's not how it works, right? The fruit doesn't cause the tree to be healthy. But if you have a healthy apple tree, apples should come. The fruit is the evidence of what's inside. And so Jesus takes this idea and he applies it to the two people in front of him. And when he's done with his parable, he turns to Simon and he offers some really direct comparison between Simon and this woman. He says, look at this woman. And he proceeds to tell him three things that he has failed to do that this woman has done. He's showing them that these two people have approached him very differently. And that their actions show the content of their heart. So what are these things? Simon did not provide water for his guest's feet. Whereas this woman has washed Jesus' feet with her own tears. Simon didn't greet his guests with a kiss. This woman has not ceased to kiss Jesus' feet. Simon didn't anoint his guest's head with oil, but this woman has anointed his feet with costly perfume. So she's shown this welcome that Simon does not. Now, these cultural uh, ways of welcoming are a little bit lost on us, but um, Simon hasn't actually neglected his duties. All of these things are going over and beyond. They're not expected, right? You didn't anoint every person who came to your house, but it would have been a way to show profound respect. So Simon's not been a terrible host. He's been, he's been polite, but he hasn't really shown much affection here. It's just a professional relationship. He might admire Jesus, but he does not love Jesus. He shows none of this um, affection that the woman does. Whereas this woman is overflowing with it. She can't, she can't hold it in, her gratitude, her, her transformation. She goes above and beyond and spares no expense. She spares no, no shame. She's not afraid of people saying, this is a weird thing you're doing. I don't, I don't like this. She's not afraid of, of spending so much of her income, of, of putting her finances on the line to show this. Um, she understands uh, the mercy of God with a fervor of love. She acknowledges her vast, unpayable obligation to God. And it shows that the greater the sin, the greater the forgiveness and the greater the joy that comes from being saved by Jesus. Now, what does all this say about Simon? He doesn't show this attitude. And he's pretty much lukewarm at best, even just to start out. His attitude is respectful, but not much more. And then he responds by really, really coming against this woman, pushing her away, and and even turning on Jesus when he offers this woman welcoming Simon shows us that self-righteous sinners lacked gratitude and grace. They lack gratitude and grace. 
point of this comparison is not to say that Simon needed less forgiveness because he had his life all put together. It's not even to say that he actually had been forgiven. It's to point out that this woman shows the evidence of a transformed heart, and Simon does not. Those who are respectable and religious are not always the ones who have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus. The ones who we see and they say, their life is all together. I've never seen them make a mistake. They are just a a perfect person. That doesn't mean that Jesus is there. And that doesn't mean that Jesus has changed their life. It doesn't mean that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. When we rely on our goodness, on our track record, on our ability, we may look good on the outside to those around us, but we can still be dead in our hearts, trapped in our sin. Because at its core, sin is, It's not about the actions fundamentally. Actions can be bad. The actions can harm others. That's true. But sin at its core is trying to live without God. And so even our best works when done without God are not pleasing. They are still sin. Trying to be righteous without God, trying to live without him, guiding our lives, directing our lives, without without our hearts loving Jesus more than we do ourselves, that um, doesn't save us. That self-righteousness brings eternal death and judgment. And the evidence of this self-righteousness is a lack of gratitude and grace. This person hasn't uh, had affection for Jesus. Their, their heart doesn't love him because they haven't been given this grace. Nothing's changed. They might respect Jesus. They might like him. They might invite him over after church for a dinner, nice and comfortable, when they have time, when there's nothing else going on that week, when I don't have, you know, things to do, I don't have work catching up, or some other people I'd rather hang, up, ha- hang out with who are really more fun than Jesus, you know, we can go do other things. I'll invite Jesus over when it's convenient. No, this is not being transformed. This is, this is not loving Jesus. This is not tasting the sweetness of his grace. They do not possess an understanding of the unfathomable, unpayable debt that they owe because of their sin. They don't know Jesus. They also can lack grace. Self-righteous sinner lacks grace. When you haven't experienced the grace of Jesus, then you're not going to show it to other people. In fact, when we haven't experienced God's grace, we're going to take great comfort in seeing other people that are more messed up than I am. Those other people, at least I'm not there. At least I haven't done that thing. And if I can compare the two, then I think I'm doing a little better and I feel pretty good about myself. We can call it a day. This is like the Pharisee who prays, thank you, God, that I am better than this sinner over here. That is, um, it leads us to doubt whether God could even save that kind of person because they must be worse than me. That's the only way I can find my own righteousness. Truthfully, the self-righteous sinner who has no gratitude, who has no grace, they might be even more unreachable than the great sinner because they don't even know that they're lost. They don't even realize the gravity of their sin. They don't know how big a problem they are in. And so, who are we? We have Simon and the sinful woman. We have the self-righteous Pharisee and the notorious sinner. These are the two extremes. And it might even remind us of a story like the prodigal son and the elder brother. One who stayed behind and and is angry that God would not honor him for following the rules and the other who squandered his father's inheritance and messed everything up. But the truth is that each of these two kinds of people is separated from God, and each is unreachable by a human standard. Each are beyond the ability to come to Jesus on their own terms. Each are beyond the ability to fix themselves and make themselves right with God. 
but neither are beyond the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. And only by grace can we be saved and transformed. It is only the miraculous work of God that can save the notorious sinner. And it is only the miraculous grace of God that can save the self-righteous sinner. So where are you? Where am I? Do you feel crushed under the shame and guilt of your past? Do you think that you've gone so far that Jesus couldn't possibly bring you back? I, we would say then look to Jesus and remember his tenderness and grace that he shows to this woman. Grace is freely given to all who come to Jesus in faith, who come to Jesus humbly. Jesus offers the same promises that he gave to that woman. Your sin has been forgiven. Go in peace. Now, perhaps you don't think this really applies to you, right? You think, I have a great relationship with God. I uh, have been following Jesus my whole life, and I practically live at church. Things are good. Um, if so, I would caution you. I would caution you if you come to these stories and say, I don't really think I'm in this right now then like me, you might struggle with a self-righteous heart. And this is something that I have struggled with for much of my life. We, I would say to you, remind yourself of the gospel. Remember that sin has made us truly lost and truly wretched, and that the best we can offer is not enough. The only remedy for our sin is God's miraculous grace. We owe an unspeakable debt to Jesus, and our lives should display the effects of his transforming grace. We should have lives of gratitude and affection towards Jesus and lives of grace towards others. All of this leads us back to Simon's second mistake. He didn't understand that Jesus came to show miraculous grace towards sinners that would produce lives of gratitude. And so because of that, he did not understand who he was talking to. He did not understand who Jesus was. That Jesus is the God who forgives after witnessing this exchange, the other people who are at the table, who are just watching this um, kind of awkward scene play out, they ask themselves, who is this guy that he even claims to forgive sins? This is something Jesus does a couple times. Luke chapter 5, John chapter 5 and 10. To claim to forgive sins was unambiguously a claim to be God. No one has the right to forgive sins except God. And the Pharisees did not miss that. Uh, in, in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus claims to forgive sins, the Pharisees say, we got to get rid of this guy because he just committed blasphemy. This is a serious thing. So Jesus is not a false prophet who can't tell the difference between a sinner and a righteous Pharisee. And he's not merely even a prophet or a wise teacher who to be welcomed and given a nice dinner after church. Jesus is so much more. He's the one who forgives sins. He shows himself to be God himself. All sin is ultimately against God, right? We can hurt other people. We can uh, harm others around us. We can harm ourselves. But God is the creator of the universe. He has set the standard for how we will live, how we will act. And so anything that goes against his word, anything that we do or fail to do, is a crime against our creator, is a crime against the king and ruler of the universe. And so anything that we might do, any sin, no matter how serious, the sins that hurt hundreds or, or, or thousands of people, or the sins that no one will ever know about, these are acts of treason and acts of corruption against God's good creation. And so only God, the King of kings, can forgive. Our debt is with God, and only he can release us. So if Jesus is this God, this Lord of creation, this King come into his creation, heaven breaking into earth— 
He shows us what kind of king he is. First, he shows us that he is a king with perfect authority. He is the only righteous judge of the universe. He is the God who can clear the guilty. Uh, or he is the God who will not clear the guilty. He will not excuse sin. He will not allow evil to go unchecked. Evil will be defeated and destroyed and creation will be restored. Jesus's kindness and grace is not weakness. It is the expression of perfect strength. And so we dare not take lightly our sin against so great a king and judge. And when forgiven, we dare not treat his mercy with contempt by returning immediately to our sin, by cheating, treating it like cheap grace. When we follow Jesus and when we are forgiven, our lives belong to him completely, full stop, without any, anything to hold back. We are his. Everything we do, everything we say, everything we think must change to follow our Lord. But Jesus is also the king with perfect goodness, even gentleness. Jesus says that he is gentle and lowly. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. The great king humbled himself and came down to search for the lost souls, the lost causes, the unreachable, to give them grace and transformation. It's free. He died in our place so that he could rightly, justly forgive our debt. He took our, our punishment upon himself. And so we can trust ourselves to this good king completely. We can give him our lives, trusting in his goodness. This woman's story shows us that Jesus is ready to forgive the debts of those who come to him in humble faith. It shows us that sinners can know for certain that they have been forgiven, that they can have a new life, that they don't have to be trapped in the, way the, the place where they were. To us, he offers the same assurance that this passage ends with. Go in peace. Peace with our God. Jesus is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Jesus is God who forgives even great sinners and none are beyond his reach. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you for the beauty of the gospel that would, that would take those of us who are lost, who are blind, who are wretched because of our, our crimes that have trapped us away from you, this prison of our own making, that you would come to us in grace and mercy. Father, I pray you would remind anyone here that no matter what it is that that haunts them, that, that's clinging to them, the thing that they feel like they can't escape, it is not something that you can't take away. That your grace and your forgiveness covers all. Father, I pray that you would destroy any self-righteous pride that's within us, Lord. That you would remind us that we have no ability to fix this problem on our own. We have no right to withhold your grace from anyone else around us. So Lord, transform us that we would love you and that we would share your love with others freely. We praise you for your gospel and your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Pastor.